Welcome to the neuroscientific aha of empathy and how we do justice to ourselves, one another, and our world. This was a conversation from Tuesday, November 27th, 2018, with author Sarah Payton, whose recent book, Your Resonant Self, is a wonderful resource of synthesizing neuroscience, neuroplasticity, and practical practices and meditations that help us step into and befriend, perhaps, our conflicts with ourselves and with one another. We welcome you to this dialogue hosted by Restorative Justice on the Rise. And for more information about Sarah and her work, please go to yourresonantself.com or to empathybrain.com. And for over 150 hours of public dialogues relating to restorative justice and peace building, go to restorativejusticeontherise.org. Hello and welcome everybody to this very special edition dialogue with Restorative Justice on the Rise as your host, and I'm Molly Rowan Leach. I am really deeply honored and delighted to have with us today someone that I think really synthesizes the conversation around stepping into our communities with personal warmth and an awareness of what it is to be in resonance. So um, in just a moment, I'm going to, of course, introduce her. But just a few words about restorative justice on the rise. Welcome to this special edition once again that will be evergreen as are most of our conversations over the past eight years at restorativejusticeontherise.org. They're also available on iTunes. You can subscribe to that RSS feed. So we are just inviting questions into the dialogue as you might wish today. Um, we also just really appreciate, appreciate the global participation that we're seeing as the United States, Canada, North Korea. We have a, a, a great following and participation circle, which we're really grateful for. And we encourage you to make sure to stay in touch by reaching out to us through the website at restorativejusticeontherise.org. So today's conversation is titled, The Neuroscientific Aha of Empathy and How We Do Justice to Ourselves, One Another, and Our World. And that's a mouthful, but um, how we wanted to frame this today is sharing with you that, again, we're so deeply delighted and inspired to have Sarah Payton with us for this very special conversation. Her work in neuroscience, NVC, and how we befriend ourselves and our personal trauma in ways that support warmth and insight are truly groundbreaking. As her work turns self-help and even guided meditation on its head. And we'll find out more about that in a moment. As we step in to serve our world, our communities, nothing is more essential than self-care, 
self-awareness, and personal warmth. It allows us to provide optimally, to serve optimally, and to offer the same to all others in our personal and professional hemispheres. Restorative Justice on the Rise invited Sarah into this dialogue today to learn more about how empathy changes the brain, how our brains keep plasticity over the course of our lives, how to receive ourselves and others in resonance and empathy, and much more. So please join us as we dive deep to the root of transforming conflict in ourselves and from that foundation, work in a circle outward into our communities and our world. A bit about Sarah, many of you, of course, and and I just want to warmly thank our friends in Australia um, who happened to recommend Sarah, and that's the first time we became aware of this very critical work that she's doing. So thank you to you um, in Australia. And so her bio, there's a lot to it, but in a nutshell, she is um, an international speaker and facilitator. She has a passion for weaving together neuroscience knowledge and experiences of healing that unify people with their brains and their bodies. Sarah makes interpersonal neurobiology research available for our embodied brains to use in living at peace with ourselves. Funny, touching, and filled with personal stories and up-to-date research on our nervous systems and how they interact with each other, her presentations change lives and invite self-acceptance and self-compassion. She offers healing experiences And she has a lot of great offerings on her website that we hope you'll check out, including webinars and study groups. And she is a CNVC certified trainer of nonviolent communication, an experienced facilitator of family constellation work, speaks and writes internationally on the confluence of NVC constellation work and the world of neuroscience research. She also guest lectures at the International Systemic Constellations Association, or ISCA, intensive at Bernried, Germany, for, for I think, over three years, it looks like. And she's been a regular contributor to the Global Association of Interpersonal, Interpersonal Neurobiology Studies. The list goes on, really. And, of course, she's the author of Your Resonant Self, And so uh, I just want to welcome you, Sarah, today, and thank you so much for the synthesizing work you do. Thank you for having me. uh, This is uh, is one of my passions, and so it's quite sweet to be be able to, to be here with you and to be able to support your work in any way I possibly can. Well, Sarah, I was wondering if you would be willing to tell us your story um, to whatever extent you'd like to in framing how we step into this conversation today, tell us about what brought you to where you are today, if you would, uh, whatever yeah. that means to you. Sure. Well, the, uh, it's very interesting for brains. Uh, the more that brains have been accompanied with warmth and resonance, so the more that brains know that they matter and have a sense of being understood by other human brains, the, the smoother 
our nervous systems operate. Our nervous systems uh, have a strong response of alarm to a world where we are not understood. So th- this is so profound that uh, that as little children, um, the the more responsive our mothers were to to our emotional experience, then as adults, the calmer we are in interpersonal conflict and in intimate and romantic conflict. We're changed, we were changed when we were small by the capacity of our mothers, and of course our mothers, it could be any mothering person, it doesn't have to be a a woman, if if a man was the most important one for us when we were small, that's that's our mother, that's our mothering person. But but what happens to us relationally changes how we operate in conflict. So for me, uh, this path that I have been on has been very much about uh, coming from a place of being in a constant state of upset because I had had so little sense of being understood. It uh, it left me combative with my with my children. It left me combative with my partner and my best friends. Um, and and I I started out on this path not a peaceful person. I came to sort of at this moment I had I had run into Marshall Rosenberg, who is the who was the founder of nonviolent communication. I'd run into his work and I thought this is great work for changing the world because he had a real strong social justice kind of mission. And I was like, this is this is what's needed. This is what needs to happen. The world needs to be changed. And I woke up finding myself having pulled my child off his bed and he was by just by grabbing the blankets and yanking them because I couldn't get him to get up for school. And I was standing there and I was shaking the blanket and I thought, this is not going to do. You know, here I am wanting to change the world. Something needs to be changed right here in this body, in this brain. How the hell am I going to do it? And so that that's really where my journey began, was in taking myself from a place of absolute non-peacefulness to a place now where I have much more choice. I mean, sometimes I still get really upset and 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 you know have really struggled over these last years where the the condition of our world is creating more and more fear and people are acting more and more out of fear and I have such a a strong body response to the you know to these social issues now. I have such a long such a strong longing for social justice, for restorative justice, for restorative circles, for for uh, for a deep and fundamental uh, supported change in human behavior that, of course, when people are in a fear state, they move away from. You know, they move away from from the sweetness that's uh, that's also a part of our human heritage mm. so uh, so uh, you know i continue you know to do this work and to hold myself with care because i have a nervous system that was uh was not initially held with care but as you mentioned in your introduction you said we our brains remain neuroplastic and this is another wonder about being human is that our brains are made to be changed by our relationships no matter how old we are the most neuroplastic, the most amenable to change part of the human brain is the relational brain. 
I'll stop there and give you a chance <laughs> to mm. come in. We want to hear your voice. <laughs> oh, thank you, Sarah, so much. I We have so much to share in such a short time, and I, I know this conversation is going to go by quickly. So yeah. I'd like to come back to your path, and I think it's important for people to know the significant work you have done and maybe you still are doing in prisons. Oh, yeah. um, and maybe share a little bit about um, any of the other pieces of your work that have have been a process perhaps for you and also have have been a great gift to this world. Oh, thank you. Well, my my work is is largely I, I, in that moment of standing there and and realizing you know that I my own brain and my own body were so affected by uh by not being accompanied by a certain kind of uh loneliness is is too simple a word for the complex experience of humans who have not been understood you know by other humans who have who have lived in a world of left hemispheres we'll talk about that in just a moment but uh, my sense in that moment was oh my god Something deeply personal needs to change in order for the deep change that I want for the world to happen. So, uh, so part of my uh, my commitment was to begin was to begin my own healing journey. But another part of my commitment was to work in a, a women's prison south of Portland, Oregon. I've been going in for maybe uh, twelve years now, and. Um, and I used to go in every week and teach nonviolent communication and interpersonal neurobiology, the study of how our brains change in relationship. Um, but but uh, I've started to travel so much that I can only get in about <clears throat> three or four times a year now, and I go in on weekends. I'll be in there this weekend with a group of volunteers. to be, and, and what we've started to look at there is transgenerational trauma and the way in which we are at the effect of the way that history has impacted our families. So that's been a, a beautiful, deepening work that not only do we get to hold uh, each individual with their traumatic experience and do healing work for individual traumas, but we also begin to look at entire families and family systems and pathways of migration and the way that colonization has changed our world which takes us back to the left and right hemisphere. So I'll just check in with you and see if this is a and if you have a question right there or if I should go into talking about the left and right hemispheres. Thank you, Sarah. I I would like to ask one other um foundational piece um be brought into our space around what resonance really might be. Oh, sure. That that can lead us into that left and right hemispheric oh, conversation sure, sure. which is so rich. Yeah, um, absolutely. So would would you share with us what you you know, what does resident resonance mean to you and if you'd be willing to link it to how it supports us stepping into restorative spaces. Sure. So I love using the metaphor of the cello to begin to describe resonance. Um when you have a cello that's being played and you have another cello sitting close by, 
the cello that's sitting both close by is actually vibrating at the with the same frequencies as the cello that's being played. The sound waves touch and transform and pl- softly play the cello that's not being played. And our bodies are like that. Y- your experience in this moment as I bring my attention to you, we've never met, but as I bring my attention to you here on the phone and allow my body to come into resonance with your body, there's, there's a, or, or to move in that direction, because I always say resonance is a two-person system. Um, as I bring my attention to you, I am attuning to you. And I'm listening, uh, the, the only cues I have are the tone of your voice. So um, as I tune into the tone of your voice and what I remember from what you've said and allow my body to be affected, and then we start to have a conversation, we begin to move toward resonance. And if I, if I ask, say to something to you, do I understand you? And you say yes, then we know that we've reached a state of resonance because it's a two-person system where two beings are experiencing that there's deep understanding. Now, uh, the way that this is important is that it takes us into the it takes us into the right hemisphere. Th- we have two hemispheres. The left hemisphere does not uh, move easily. It's uh, it's different in its essence from the right hemisphere. Uh, it it is not moved and affected in the same way by the experiences that are happening around us. And it does not have access to the integrated body map. So it doesn't know what's happening in somebody's body. But as soon as we begin to enter right hemisphere space, we start to enter a space of fluidity where things are changeable, where we are changeable, you know, we can change one another. So as we move into circles where we're asking for deep dialogue, and we move into community-based justice where we're bringing the heart of the matter to the issues at hand, at hand. Then what happens is that bodies enter a fluid space where they can be moved and changed by one another's experience. Now, the kind of language that we use is extremely important because our major language centers are in the left hemisphere, not a particularly changeable place. But there are certain kinds of language that shift us a little bit to the right. And in that shifting, give us access to being moved and changed by one another. The kinds of language that move us into that space include metaphor, poet, poetry, visual imagery, uh, body sensations, emotions, the deep longings that Marshall Rosenberg called needs, the universal human needs, all of these kinds of language have been shown to activate and enliven and awaken the hemisphere that is connected with relationality and change. So the more that we bring bodies and hearts and emotions into our restorative circles, the more we bring a capacity to be moved by one another into our circles. I'll just pause there and check in with you. Mm. Oh, this is so rich. Um, so grateful. 
Sarah, if you'd be willing to come back with me for a moment to the very personal story you shared mm-hmm. about your own process, what what was the moment that you perhaps found yourself coming to a space of being able to witness your own, as you described it, um, non-peaceful state. What what allowed you to come to that place? Mm, so like what allowed me to be a witness for myself? Mm-hmm. How do we do that, and how did you do it for yourself? Well, I think a little part of this is... Uh, uh, th- there are two pieces, I think. One is a longing for something different and a sense that something different might be possible. Those two different things, they're quite they are quite distinct because we can long for something different, but we can be blocked by our lack of hope. And we can have hope but not know what we might long for. So when these two things converge, a longing for something different and uh, and the hope that it's possible, uh, then I think uh, that we begin to open doorways. And I think that happened for me in that moment. I had been studying Marshall Rosenberg, so I had a sense of a dream. I had a sense of a better world. And I had started to have experiences where I was changed by being understood. And by this I mean I would start out with like a strong sense of blaming someone or or a strong sense of resentment or frustration or anger or annoyance. And when I was deeply understood by another human, that annoyance would evaporate. And it would take me toward a capacity to mourn. And this is our third element that becomes so important as we ask ourselves to check to step into change processes we have to have um accompaniment so that we can mourn so that we can feel sadness we'll change much more quickly if uh for example i mean some something small and and sort of and not so very um well, well I'll just start with something small like asking yourself to recycle you know or, or asking yourself to use less fossil fuel or asking yourself to to go out for an extinction rebellion rally you know these small steps that we're all engaged in on a daily basis as we're trying to move into the new world that we find ourselves in the new kind of level of of planetary need that we find ourselves in how do we how do we hold ourselves with gentleness in this movement so if we stay angry at we ourselves if we stay blaming with ourselves if i as a mother just thought oh i am a sucky mother and i suck and i just shouldn't even be a mother it leaves me no room for movement as opposed to if i say i'm so sad that i'm finding myself harming my child i want something different then we st- it, it's like that wanting something different is born out of the capacity for sadness whereas if we stay in blame we stay in the unchangeable left hemisphere once it decides 
that someone is to blame, it will stay there unless we give it a little gentle kickstart. So part of what happens in the circles that you're that you're fostering is that people are moved by one another's beings, by one another's bodies, by one another's emotions, and they're getting a gentle sort of a gentle push out of the left hemisphere into more embodied space where they're able to be moved by one another. And this happens, you know, within ourselves when we're in, in, engaged in, uh, in actions that we don't enjoy, temper tantrums, domestic violence, uh, you know, um, road rage, uh, um, being cruel or contemptuous with people we love. All of these are things that we get locked into if we stay in a state of blame where if we can move into really seeing ourselves and mourning our incapacities, we begin to invite ourselves into new spaces. Is this making any sense? Oh, absolutely. And it, it, if I may also just share what that brings for me is, in addition, the very common and universal space that I think many Americans, North Americans share, um, around just simply getting by yeah. and how that can, you know, that can probably pull us into a space that um, that you're describing as well yeah. of, of just trying to make ends meet. Yeah. Yeah. So we are so much there. So it, it is so much our experience all over the world. Just, you know, praying for the strength to get through the day and praying for the uh, for the money to last so that we can make the rent payment or the mortgage payment or figure out how to 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 uh, this movement that we're all involved in where we're starting to have to to pay to be alive um uh the the sort of commercialization of life itself where we have to figure out how to you know pay for water clean water we have to figure out how to live in places that might have cleaner air we have to it's like the the our earth is burdened to a point with with all of our systems of of you know uh sort of Everything being changed into units of of of, uh, of economics, where where there's not much room for the, the our beloved humanity to be able to breathe, and we also get to mourn that. Mm. Uh, mm. And yeah, and when we mourn, we we get to imagine a different world. Mm. I've been enjoying uh, the work of Martin Prechtel. Oh, yes. And uh, the, this conversation really is resonant of that feeling of the interrelationship between grief and praise and ah. the incredible importance um, that probably links to this deep work of yours in resonance and neuroplasticity and neurobiology around if we staunch our grief, if we deny that for ourselves and, and each other, 
it's very impossible to praise in full. Yeah. And so I'm so I'm just really moved by by how I can see this interlinking deeply um together with, you know, of course his work as well, but um can, can we go back for a moment to the the beautiful metaphor <laughs> that you used around the cello mm. and and re- and resonance mm. and from there um would you share with us a bit about nonverbal communication mm. and how we step into a, perhaps in this case a restorative space with a circle process whether it's community building process where we're sharing you know our our views, our feelings, our needs, or a conflict process as well, because of course there's so many ways to do circle. Yeah, of um, course. So, so could you share with us about nonverbal resonance? What yeah. what is that, and how do we know when we might be in there if we don't have a wonderful cello with us <laughs> to, to make um. sure that, that we're we're resonant? Yeah, yeah. I'd like to extend that metaphor just for one moment with the blame and mourning Please. um uh, words. So if you if you grab the cello and you hang on to it really tightly, it will not resonate, right? You'll stop the resonance, you'll stop that soft music that's being played. And 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 our bodies are the same. Uh our bodies our bodies need to be the soft animals that they are, to quote, you know, Mary Oliver. Um, uh, when we hang on to them very tightly, which is what, uh, which is what they, they do, they clamp down when we shift into states of blame, then we're no longer in relational space because our bodies are no longer vibrating with one another. So to come to the nonverbal, the decoding of nonverbal is an entirely right hemisphere experience. So in order to even begin to perceive nonverbal communication, we um, almost have to be in, uh, in a receptive state and attuned state. Um, and we'll move in and out of this in our circles. I mean, it can be so simple that, you know, people can have had traumatic experiences with groups of people they can walk into a room with a group of people they can already be in a a, a kind of long-term trauma state about groups and then they're even though they're not speaking and you and they may their eyes may be darting everywhere looking at everybody they're not actually in a state of attunement and capacity for reception it's important to acknowledge you know that for some of us, groups are sweet and soft and safe places, and for others of us, groups have been the uh, locus of humiliation and bullying and, and, and fear and scapegoating. So everybody has a different experience walking into a room, and then as the space is held, then there's a movement either towards bodies relaxing and becoming more receive, more rece- receptive or bodies becoming more tense and less receptive. And we'll feel this movement also over time as, as conflict arises and falls inside of a circle. 
because the way that the conflict is held has one effect, and the history of trauma with conflict for every person in the circle has another effect. So we have present time and past time converging in whether or not people can be receptive to what's happening um, with each other. But the nonverbals include uh, facial expression, gesture, body posture, whether or not people are breathing. And they also include everything about speech that is not the content of the speech itself. So as people are listening to your voice and your engagement, they follow, they, they, they become engaged with you as they listen to my passion. They may feel my passion with me because what we give our attention to, we follow neurobiologically. So the person that we're bringing our attention to is a person that we are kind of sampling and experiencing their neurobiology along with, but not just through the content of the words, but rather through the aliveness of the voice, the speed of the words, where the emphasis is, our emphases are put, what's the, what's the rhythm, what's the tone, what's the emotional quality in the speaker's voice. We can tell in less than 13 seconds we can tell what somebody's emotion is as they're speaking. We're incredibly uh, capable. We're finely made instruments for understanding one another when we are not clamped down by blame. Now, Molly, did I go anywhere towards where you wanted me to go with that answer? Absolutely. I'm... I'm in this conversation with you and everyone in a manner of circular and probably right brain space today, which I think helps us to to be present with what wants to come to the surface. Mm. And I, hopefully that makes sense for, yeah, for totally. everyone with us. Yeah. Um, I want to pause. And just thank everybody on that note for being here with us today, whether it's live or, you know, as this evergreen podcast makes its way into the virtual world through iTunes. We're talking with Sarah Payton, who is the author of Your Resident Self, and Sarah's work is international. Um, Her offerings include webinars and um, study groups, as well as speaking events and otherwise. And Sarah, on that note, um, at the halfway point here, or a little over that, would you like to share one of perhaps your favorite practices that you have in this wonderful new book of yours, Your mm, Resonance Self? Too. Yeah, the very most basic practice is a guided meditation practice or you can do it on your own once you learn it and I'll just invite everyone to take a moment to do this with me you notice that you are first of all you notice that you are a breathing being and your breath may be very small depending on how much danger there is in your environment or perceived danger and your breath may be very deep may be going deep into your abdomen and moving your belly, depending on how much safety you have a sense that there is in your environment. So as you notice your breath and notice yourself as a breathing being, what I invite is for you to find the place in your breath 
that has the most aliveness, the most alive sensation. And allow your attention to come to rest in this place of sensation. And attention is a very flighty thing, and it will move away as attention does and try to get you to pay attention to instead the pain in your back or the or what's happening in your belly or what's happening with your throbbing big toe. And you can very gently and warmly say to your attention, thank you, attention. Thank you for for your support. Thank you for trying to make sure that I'm noticing what really hurts. And for this little moment, I wonder if you'd be willing to come back to my breath and back to the aliveness of sensation. And again, you'll notice that your attention may dart away to try to take care of you. And this is just a process of gently and warmly thanking your attention for its care and seeing if it's willing to come back to your breath. You can track along and do this um, by counting. I think for the first three years that I was doing this practice, I would get to one and then my attention would go away. It would take me a while to realize it was gone. And I would go home and stop <laughs> counting my breath. And I would invite my attention back to my breath. One. And then I'd be remembering my aunt and what I had forgotten to do. And I would bring my attention back. One. And then I would think about what I needed to make for dinner. So it can be quite a long process of beginning to invite a warm affectionate relationship with our attention. And of course, there are people who've been doing meditation practices for years. And for those people, we would say, in addition to your breath meditation and your easy focus on your breath, I invite you to create a bubble of affection and warmth around every cell of your body, just to completely surround and suffuse you with warmth and affection. It's, and this is quite a sweet practice that can change us, even if we're doing it one breath a day. It can be quite a quite a changer of the of the self-critical, self-blaming, static kind of attitude that we'll often have with ourselves. Mm. How how is this practice for you, Molly? Mhm it's um thank you it's elemental mm-hmm. and overlooked yeah. i would say yeah um so easy for us to overlook the obvious perhaps our breath mm-hmm. <laughs> without our breath without our breath where where would we be here yeah. in this um beautiful and messy human experience. So I'm feeling appreciation for that practice and also just want to put a word in for just the depth um, and expansiveness of the practical tools that you do share in this this new book, Your Resonant Mm -hmm. Self, and um, how highly recommended it is. Um, Of course, the publisher is Norton and um just came out earlier this year, didn't it? Came out one year ago, yeah. Okay, one year ago. Yeah. yeah. Well it's um I just 
want maybe to ask you a few more questions about um, the this thing called resonance and um, how it informs our ability to, you know, ensure that we're stepping into to these spaces together mm. um, with warmth. So yeah. you, one of the concepts that you share in your book is about self-warmth. And um, in the restorative justice field, uh, many of us are, are witnessing a sense of, you know, we, I guess what M.C. Richards, uh, the wonderful late author and artist, um, pottery, ceramic artist who wrote um, uh, Centering, talked mm-hmm. a lot about knowing ourselves by our resistances. Mm-hmm. And so going into um, the service of holding space for circles, yeah. Um, how can we befriend ourselves and our conflicts mm. with with those these wonderful people this work with us um, by tapping into our own resonance by sharing it with others and yeah. and what do we do when when it's not that because it's not often that. Mm. I had this amazing experience once with Stephanie West Allen, and I was at a conference with her, and uh, and said something about the neurobiology of uh, of of conflict mediation, which is a slightly different uh, sort of take on all of this than restorative circles, but has something in common. She said, "When we walk into the room, we have to be the peace that we want to bring." And as she said it, it was like she shifted her own being into this deep, peaceful state that sent out almost like a sound wave. It was a silent wave, but it was a wave of peace, and I still remember how it washed over me. And so there's something about, as you use you know, this beautiful word, centering, that as we... Uh, create within ourselves a holding being who is holding us in our messiness with affection and warmth and and a kind of, I love the words of course. So for example, if I'm teaching and and I get upset or irritated or ashamed, if I allow a part of myself to hold this part that's upset or anxious or ashamed, um, and I say, and I have this larger part of myself that I invite to say, of course, Sarah, of course you would be embarrassed in this moment. Don't you love it when things go smoothly and and you have the right words and you don't feel like you've made a mistake? I wonder if you need acknowledgement for the wear and tear on your soul of how much you long for this to go perfectly. Wouldn't that be sweet? I mean, there's just this sort of warm holding of self that we can develop that holds ourselves no matter where we are. If we're angry, we hold ourselves with understanding and resonance. If if we're ashamed, we hold ourselves with understanding and resonance. If we're sad, we hold ourselves. And as we do this, we're also able to hold the people, the beloved people in our circles with this same, like, of course energy, 
one of the things that Dominic Barter, who is a Brazilian restorative uh, circles person, has said is he has said that we must be omnipartial, that we we must we must be on the side of everyone. We're not disengaged. We're fully engaged, mm-hmm. but we're fully resonant, and we remain centered ourselves. So that there's a larger being that we're inviting to hold us and to hold everyone in the circle with this, of course, energy. And the paradox mm. of resonance is that as soon as resonance happens, things change. Uh, we can't do resonance in order to make things change. <laughs> But the paradox is that once we are truly resonant, what's supposed to emerge, emerges. I loved what you said about you know being in the right hemisphere and that what's happening here between us is exactly right. You know, that this is the emergent space of, of, of holding and allowing and being open to what is new. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. The what's alive for me right now is so a, a sincere appreciation for all the experiences that you've brought with you on your professional and personal path and intertwined them to help us understand through science how this all works um as it pertains to neuroplasticity and otherwise and I mean, it's just a big aha moment like the title of our conversation really describes Mm. um, that in and of itself perhaps is warmth (laughs) because we can can say, oh, okay, I guess maybe it wasn't me. Um, There is some science to this. So it leads me to the question, Sarah, would you be willing to share what you're seeing in in today's science that brings you hope, like specific oh, examples yeah. of, neuro, you know, neuroscience and, I mean, I for me, I, I think of heart math and how much hope that brings me yeah. um, and their, you know, scientific studies. And in my former work with the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which a lot of people may not even know about, um, you know, where scientific um, experiments have been done around the power of intentionality and attention and, and even prayer. And so mm. would you tell us uh, a little bit more about what you're seeing right now? Yes. yes, I don't what think it's, yeah, I don't think it's any accident that at this point in history, the conservative political movements are turning their back on science. There has been a huge movement toward uh, a convergence of humanities and science as we go more deeply into an understanding of the world in all its incarnations and and also into an understanding of the brain. So part of what gives me huge delight living at this point in history is to see the way that scientists are being moved by their own research this is uh this is particularly a, a delight in the world of relational neuroscience or interpersonal neurobiology this study of how we're changed by one another so we're we've got these all these fmri machines and we've got cognitive neuroscientists and social neuroscientists 
putting people into fMRI machines and looking at what happens in their brains when they use their brains in different ways. And one of my favorite uh, researchers is James A. Cohen, who um, who does a, a body of work that he calls social baseline theory, which doesn't uh, exactly describe what he does. What he does is he looks at the effects of accompaniment on the brain. So he looks at how when we are alone and and we receive an ankle shock, then it registers a certain amount of pain in the brain. And when we're accompanied, especially when we're accompanied by someone that we love and trust, then the same shock registers almost no pain in the brain. That that when we look at how steep a mountain is, if we're alone, we estimate that it is steeper than it is. And if we're accompanied especially by somebody that we love and trust, then the, our perception of of the burden of, of having to go up this hill is that we underestimate. We don't think it's as steep as it actually is. We perceive life differently depending on whether or not we have someone with us. So this is a, the essential work of James A. Cohen, who is a researcher who definitely gives me hope. Another person who's doing incredible work is Ruth Lanius, who's doing work on post-traumatic stress disorder and recently worked with a person who does a kind of time travel with with animals, with huge, beautiful uh, animal guardians that come through time and space to be with us as traumatized children and to kind of rescue and accompany and protect the little children that we were in difficult moments, working with memory. And what Ruth Lanius discovered was that this kind of work, uh, which is uh, very similar to some of the work that I do that's, uh, that's shown in the book, that this kind of work changes the way that the brain responds to past trauma that it that it that it creates a, a visible change in our default mode network which is the the automatic way that the brain uses itself when we're not uh focusing on something external so if we're uh focusing on uh, on learning algebra then the default mode network is not at work but if we're just waking up in the morning or just going to sleep and this is when the default mode network works, and it's it's sewing us into our lives. And the way that trauma affects us is that it takes us into trauma loops, and instead of being able to sew ourselves into our own lives, we're disrupted, everything is disrupted by the past trauma. So these kinds of things give me deep hope that we can begin to change the after effects of trauma in the human brain and that we are deeply changed in our perception of the world by how we are accompanied. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And one one of the pieces of this thread, I, I really want to make sure if we could dive into before we close today, is the piece around regulation. There's a lot of talk, and I know we've touched on it in so many ways throughout the hour, but um, in the restorative justice field in the United States, 
it appears that um, ever more deeply people, educators, dedicated teachers, administrators, um, and communities as well, but specific to restorative justice and education, there's a real awareness being placed on trauma, and, and certainly not just now. Uh, it, it always, there always has been um, an eye for trauma and a, a, you know studies into it, of course. But how do we blend this sense of being aware of trauma? of um in ourselves in, in our in the children that we're with um and help all of us to understand self regulation mm-hmm. and i'm wondering if you you know I, I mean in my work with teachers and my work with 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 practitioners and and just people in general wanting to know how do we recognize when we might be triggered um and what do you recommend as the steps in in this thing called self-regulation? And, mm. and maybe even sharing what what regulation means to you. Sure. If you would. Sure. Thank you. Uh, regulation uh, is an interpersonal experience that starts very early. It starts in the first days of life and is already in place by the time that we're four months old, long before we have even words. And the basis of regulation is the experience of being understood by the mother, the mothering person, whether that's a male or a female. So the the baby has an emotional experience, and the question is, does the parent's face reveal that the parent understands and empathizes with the baby? So just for a microsecond, if a baby is startled by a balloon, does the parent's face say, of course you're startled. That was a loud noise. You know, or if the baby is hungry and the mother is able to figure it out and to feed them, you know, the mother can be like, oh, well, of course you're hungry. Of course you there's a There's an of courseness that begins to be carried by the infant by the time that they're 18 months old their nervous system is responding differently to the speed bumps of life than a person who has not received a sense of being understood. When our parents' faces are not able to reveal to us that they are accompanying us on our journey, we are left on our own to try to mobilize our own cortisol system in order to be able to survive life's speed bumps. Whereas a child that has had this sense of being accompanied actually is outsourcing their stress into this imaginal space where they've got somebody saying, of course, of course you feel this way. So there's quite a lot that we can learn from this. And uh, the happy news, of course, is what we mentioned earlier in this call, that neuroplasticity is lifelong. And that we can change exactly in this area of regulation because this is the relational space. This is the most neuroplastic place in the human brain. And this is my personal journey to go from being that shaking, screaming mother to uh, to where I am now it has been uh, a journey of some 12 years of of turning toward myself with the of course. 
course, Sarah. And um, and so uh, as teachers, as space holders, as facilitators, um, we we get to bring this very quality that we now know with such specificity changes our human brains. We get to bring this quality of self-resonance and self-understanding. Uh, and and a part of what needs to happen is um, we need practice. <laughs> so the book provides practice. We can find groups that help us to practice. Uh, identifying emotions, telling what body sensations are happening, figuring out if this body sensation had an emotional tone, what would it be? and beginning to decode and understand our own selves. I just recently realized that when I was grumpy, it was actually like sadness all wrinkled up in a ball because I, in my family of origin, we didn't know how to hold sadness. We could hold anger more effectively. So I, it's almost like I learned to rumple my sadness up into a grumpy ball and just be grumpy. And so there's this lifelong experience, I think, of discovery, of self-understanding that's a part of this journey. Mm. One of the parts of your work that, uh, even in this, even though we didn't name it specifically today, that I just want to acknowledge and honor as well is the family constellation work, which um, I'm sure many people are very familiar with. And if you're not, um, deeply recommend the interconnection between restorative practices and family constellation work and how, you know, many of us in the field and much beyond, um, and certainly, you know, our indigenous and, um people who've been doing it you know for ancient time understood the sense that there is a very real shared field i mean i believe jung's work um named it specific to the the collective unconscious i i believe mm. Sarah, is that correct that is correct and, yeah. and so really what we're looking at is nothing less than this beautiful, messy opportunity to heal not only ourselves, but each other, and to do that with warmth. Somehow, mm. what, a, you know, what a hat trick that would be yeah. in sport talk, to really yeah. consider the blessing and opportunity we have and to turn, turn it on its head in that manner, mm-hmm. like, like you do with your work. And... Um, I just want to invite, Sarah, any closing comments that you might like to share with people as we leave this sacred conversation we've had today. Oh, thank you, Molly. Uh, I, I think just to say that the the constellation work is is the only modality that I'm completely familiar with where we get to really... Uh, come into contact with the impact that the history of the world has had on our families. And that the beautiful epigenetic research of Moshe Jif has shown us uh, that, that, that historical trauma and, uh, and large-scale weather events and, and disasters and, and, uh, and uh, wars and famines impact 
our family uh, epigenetic code, and that we um, and that there are very few opportunities that we get to really hold a sense of our family's intersection with world history, and yet we are marked and changed by that, and it has a lot to do with how we respond to stress and how we respond to conflict. And that we get to, uh, when we do constellation work, we actually get to think about and hold with warmth and affection, not just our own journey through this life, but our family's movement through history. And... um, and its profound impact on us. So thank you for mentioning that, because it's a it's a particular kind of healing work that I would love to have more exposure and and more more ex- be, be experienced by more people in this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like to just so share that I see a future in this field of restorative justice and circle processes that inc- is inclusive to uh, a constellation process. Beautiful. So, Sarah, I just want to thank you on behalf of Restorative Justice on the Rise. I can't thank you enough. This has been a cutting-edge conversation, um, and it just the depths to which it's gone, I really look forward to sharing it out with the world, um, for it to stream out in places where um, it can be useful to you, um, the deeply valuable participant who, without you, we we wouldn't be. And um, on that note, um, please check out, of course, yourresonantself.com, which is the main website for Sarah's new, relatively new book, Your Resonant Self, Guided Meditations and Exercises to Engage your brain's capacity for healing. And Sarah, if people would like to be directly in touch with you, how can they do that? There's a contact form on that website, and there's also a second website that's called empathybrain.com. And for those of you who are hearing this uh, presentation uh, before December 17th, there will be uh, a free process webinar where you'll get to hear some of the intergenerational work live uh, if that's something that interests you. So that's on uh, empathybrain.com and there's a free registration for that. And you're also offering a retreat in Maui in January? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, there are three places left at the retreat in Maui starting in January. And then for those of you interested in family constellations, there's a year of constellation training coming up starting in 2019. And all of that is listed again at yourresonantself.com or empathybrain.com. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Molly. Pleasure to support your work in any way here. I hope that it has. Thank you so much. And on behalf of Justice on the Rise and our global community, thank you for being with us today. For all of our podcasts and dialogues, as well as webinar offerings, including our upcoming Connection series, go to Restorative Justice on the Rise. It's been our pleasure to be with you today. I'm Molly Rowan Leach. Until next time, thank you.